We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. We are in the book of Romans. Go ahead and turn to chapter 15 with me, and we will see what the Lord does through this passage. Now might be a fitting time for me to use a cheesy pastor joke, like the weather outside is frightful. But like, I know. You can see it coming. You can see it coming. Uh, yeah, this is the fire of God's word. Let, let's let it warm our hearts this morning, shall we? Romans 15, and we'll be in verses 23 through 33. So speaking of college, Jim and Rhonda... Uh, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to study abroad in the country of Italy. And I remember buying a, a, a little train ticket to the city of Florence to go see the statue of David. Because, like, you're supposed to, right? And I remember standing before that massive statue. And this was how, honestly, my college mind worked at the time. Cool. That was probably the depth of my thought, right? I do remember like appreciating how big it was. I remember uh, appreciating the detail. But really, that was it. I had no idea how much work it took to make the statue of David. It didn't like just show up there uh, at the museum at Florence. It took an incredible amount of work. So way back in like the 1400s, okay? Little history lesson. One piece of marble was cut out of this quarry in the Tuscany region. And this is like when there were no cars, no trains, and one piece of marble was carted, rolled, whatever, all the way to the city of Florence. And there was actually three guys commissioned to chisel on this big block of stone, right? I didn't know that. I thought it was just Michelangelo. But prior to Michelangelo even being born, one of the guys that was commissioned, one of these sculptors, worked 11 years just on the legs, right? Later on, another dude picked up his work and worked out, worked on just cutting the hole in between the legs. And then Michelangelo, when he was 26, was commissioned to finish up this project. 26. Worked on it for two years. Um, a team, a commissioning team of 30 gathered together. All that means is a whole bunch of people a long time ago with a lot of money decided who who should like finish up this project? And they chose Michelangelo. And where should we put it? 30 people went into making that decision, right? Which is work in and of itself, commissioning, right? They, they put it in this like piazza, and after 
300 years, they noticed that the left leg started cracking. And so in the 1800s, they moved it into the Museum of Florence, okay? A lot of work went into this statue that I saw in college and I went, that's cool. Honestly, in my mind, was it like, did it just show up there? The statue of David is pretty remarkable if you've ever seen pictures of it. Um, In this one block of wood, Michelangelo managed to balance it perfectly, this 17-foot-tall statue, yet give it some sort of proportion to where it's leaning on its back foot as David is holding his sling. If you look carefully, the statue of David... um, One eye is a little bit cockeyed, and he did it on purpose. One eye is meant to be looking at Goliath prior to throwing the stone, while the other guy is looking in the distance. If you notice, and if you've read about it, uh, the statue of David, his right hand is massive. And if if you look at it in detail, Michelangelo, like, was so excellent in his work you can see the veins and 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 you can see slightly his ribs sticking out it's really a remarkable statue Uh, a little research done on this did you know that um, they have like the city of florence and the country of italy they have something called the David Syndrome. I didn't know this. But it's described as, as a syndrome that people get after looking at the statue for a long time. Um, uh, throughout history, hundreds of people, after just looking at the statue, have been rushed to the hospital for care because they're so in awe of the work. Isn't that wild? Now, that didn't happen to me when I was there. But I thought that that was crazy. These folks are having an overdose on David. Let me share with you a quote. Because it would be easy to think, wow. All over the world, people are coming to see uh, Michelangelo, uh, Michelangelo's work. And it would be easy to be tempted to be like, wow, that's, that piece of work... Michelangelo just kind of whipped it up, and there it is for us to look at. When asked, um, Michelangelo, like, you're so gifted. You're so talented. Like, how in the world did you do that? Parentheses, assuming he just um, kind of like did it on a whim. This was his response. Watch this. And, And we have it up on the screen for you to just soak in a little bit. This was his response. If people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful at all. Isn't that interesting? Michelangelo, this didn't just happen by sheer giftedness or inspiration. Michelangelo worked incredibly hard. So much so that if you asked him, and if you watched him, you wouldn't think he's talented or inspired or or gifted at all, it's just that he's got plain old good work ethic. That was his answer. 
The point? The statue didn't just appear out of thin air. It took a tremendous amount of work. And now, people all over the world travel to Florence to see, and they are impacted by the work. Last week, uh, we learned about the ministry. We're in chapter 15, and today we're going to learn about the work of ministry. There's a lot of details involved in the work of ministry. We're going to see Paul relay those for us. And it would be easy at the end of the day, we'd be tempted to be like, ah, there's missions, or there's the ministry, and it just happens. It just kind of like rolls. And uh, if we have to work hard in the ministry, maybe, just maybe, it's not the Spirit's leading. Because if it's easy, that means that God has His hand on it. But we're going to see those are wrong assumptions in the work of God. And Paul works real hard in the ministry. And in conveying this to the church, and now today in 2021, we're going to be called to the same thing. So the title today is called Missions Work. This is both for local and abroad. And the timeless truth that the text is going to tell us today is that the ministry takes work. The work of planning and praying. So let's go ahead and start. Um, Let your eyes fall on verses 23 with me. The first point is missions planning. Missions planning. So again, Paul is conveying that the statue of David, hey, it didn't just show up, that ministry takes a lot of labor. And we're asking, well, what kind of labor? Like, what kind of work does it involve? And initially, through the text, we're going to say it takes a lot of financial work and a lot of financial planning. So if you're taking notes, write down financial planning. Here we go. Let your eyes go to verse 23 with me. But now, since I no longer have any room for work, okay, and we're really capitalizing on that, on that word today, for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. All right, so look up for a sec. Do you see the request for money in there? Did you catch it in there where it says that I'm, I'm going to ask for your help on my journey? So a little bit of Paul's life as he was on his missionary journeys, planting churches, visiting churches, seeing how they're doing, he would take up a a benevolent collection from the churches, mostly Gentile churches, in order to give to the Jerusalem church. So why was Paul so determined to visit churches to ask for money And then take up the money from those Gentiles, those non-believing Jews, and give them to believing Jews in another part of the world. Why was he so like motivated to do that? So I would say the financial gift from a Gentile church, whether it was Ephesus or whatever, to Jerusalem, was not just a, 
just like a, hey, sorry about all that suffering that you guys have experienced from the Gentiles. So it wasn't like a pity gift. Like, man, sorry about that time in Egypt. Whew, 400 years. Hey, let's just give them some money. One-time gift. It wasn't like that. It also wasn't just like a token gift of appreciation. Like, hey, by the way, thanks for our salvation. Because in Romans, uh, just in this last chapter, in 15, 25 through 27, we learn that salvation comes from the Jews. It comes from Christ, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's rooted in the faith from the Jews. So it's not like, let's just give to them because it started there. And let's just go on with our lives. Rather... This collection by Paul was specifically designed to bring unity among the churches. We read in Ephesians 2 that there's two groups. There was Jews, and then there was everyone else called the Gentiles. And there was a dividing wall of, does anyone know this passage? Hostility, that's right. There's a dividing wall of hostility. And without the supernatural, the natural man would hate Anyone unlike himself. And so Paul gathers money from the Gentile churches to promote unity to the Jewish church. It was a voluntary collection. And it worked for churches as a whole as well as for individual hearts. Real quick. Hey guys. Uh, There is something special that happens when we pool our money for the sake of Christ's mission. Flat out. And and one of the chief special things that happens is unity. This unity with cause and purpose. Philippians talks about it like being one in spirit and in purpose. We experience this kind of unity with our mama church, uh, Antioch. Uh, last year when there was a blast in Beirut. You guys remember, we pooled our money together and these two churches sent money to a Y there for the cause of missions in hopes that we would one day get to have further ministry there in hopes to one day plant a church there or connect a church that's already existing to the Y. Why? So that the lost would hear about the gospel of Jesus. Like we're pooling our money together so that we would see the ministry of God go forth. This brings about great unity. So, the first one, in terms of missions planning, we're talking about the work. What's it take? We're saying finances is a big part. The Spirit is involved in that. That's not just like some thing that a deacon does or whatever, but like that we are so inundated with money because it's a a spiritual indication of our hearts. So whenever we send out the email about the monthly budget, that should be a very spiritual update for you guys. Like, yes, all right. We're talking about money. (laughs) What else does it take? The ministry takes decision-making. So number two, decision-making. They chose a particular area of need. Read verse 25 and 26 with me. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia 
have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So we could, we could read this passage in two ways. One would be we could read it prescriptively, which I think is a little bit silly, which means we take this literally and we as a church apply it to our lives and say every bit of our money that we pull together has to go to the poor people in Jerusalem. <laughs> which That's not a good way to read the Bible, um, at least in some cases, in this case. Rather, I think it's descriptively. They pulled together their money, they prayed, and they said, Lord, where would you need this most? Where should we give it? And you know what? There was probably 400 billion needs. And they said, this is me uh, interpreting, they said, we probably can't meet every single need. How about we choose one? And so they made a decision which is a very good thing to do, making specific, singular decisions. It gives you focus and said, let's do this. And I think we have a lot to learn from that. We can, we can uh, take a good principle to say like, hey, hey church, there are a hundred needs that we could meet. Let's pray and plan where our money goes for the cause of Jesus. What else does it take? Let's keep looking at it. The ministry, number three, takes a good attitude. So we're asking again, wow, ministry takes work? Oh, my expectations are being shifted. And Paul's saying, yeah, it does. And that's a good thing. What kind of work, Mike? Well, we're seeing next is it takes an, a work of attitude. Let, uh, let's look at verse 27. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owed it to him. Isn't that great? This church was pleased to do it. Like their attitude was one of joyful cheer in the process. They didn't give begrudgingly. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. through Let me read it for you. This is a great giving passage. It says, The point of this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Here's the catch, ready? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a... You guys know it. God loves it. God loves a cheerful giver. Let me just um, relate this even in our own church. You want a great example of of a people laboring for the ministry, like working hard and planning and praying so that God's word would be known through our church to the lost. I think a great example is last June and July when we did our Create workshop. It was awesome. It took a tremendous amount of work. It took a tremendous amount of emails and texts and planning and late, ni- late nights over like the, the whiteboard and things like that. And guess what? In just a few short weeks, um, the writing track, all of their devotionals will be printed and bound and given out to 88 families plus 25 staff of the Y and a hundred and so of you guys so that you guys will hear the word, read it, receive it, and cherish Jesus with it. 
They worked hard. They worked real hard. And it's such a great example. They could have been tempted to be like, I don't know if the Spirit's really in it because ministry's just supposed to happen. It's supposed to be like the wind, right? It just blows and poof. Paul's setting our expectations as a church. It takes hard work. Pray that these devotionals would be received so well, first in your hearts, but also in the lives of everyone at the Y. It's awesome. So excited. What else does the work of ministry take? Friendship. This one might surprise you, but I just love this one. Look at verse 24 with me. Paul's talking about when he's going to visit him, and he says, Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. All right. So this means, friends, that it's actually really important to like watch a ball game with a buddy. It's actually really meaningful. Like when you and your, and your spouse sit down on a Sunday night, and you go something like, Hey, so what's going on this week in your life? Hey, hey, do you, ha- do you have any friend time this week? That would be really good for you. I want to make that happen for you. Because friendship is really important. Why? Because we're not just running this enterprise, this like massive ship called the ministry that is this structure and program and it like everything fits we actually from paul we actually want to like each other (laughs) you know like we want to enjoy each other in the process hannah and i are so grateful we just we've got such a great church with great friends we say this often but probably not enough that if we were moving to mainville and looking for a church we would come here because it's like, we want to be friends with these people. We want to like lock arms in the gospel ministry and, and be friends with them and see Jesus known in this community. One quick note on this, though. Um, and this is a big one. You know how sometimes our thinking can go like this? Like, well, I've got my friends, and then I've got church. Right? These are my friends that I do life with, and this is where I go to church. I, th- I, think, I think that like Christendom has kind of got over that hump. I think that, that we see now, we see from Scripture that like living life with your church produces friendship. It's not like two things that are separate. But also I think, I think we could grow and learn from this that when we are together... We don't have to just talk shop. We don't have to just talk church when we're at church. And then like kind of categorize friendship time. Oh, we're, we're in friend mode right now. Let's not talk about church. Like I think those worlds could blend. So like when we're hanging out and being friends, it could be like, hey, bro, how's your community group doing? Hey, we're, hey do you remember last week when we were at community group? Wasn't that a great time? Hey, what was meaningful for you there, bro? That's a great friendship question. It doesn't have to be a churchy question. It's just you walking with Jesus. So give that a shot this week. Don't try to categorize your life two separately. Blend them. 
And as you're befriending each other, talk about friendship stuff and church stuff and see how the Lord advances the ministry through those conversations. Don't have such rigid boxes. Cool? You with me? All right, let's do it. Next, what does ministry take? A grounded philosophy of ministry. Look at verse 27. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul says to them, hey, of course, these like ministers of the gospel, these Gentiles, they're going to come to you, right? And of course, they're going to share the word of God with you. Of course, they want you to walk with Jesus and grow in him. Like they're going to be about the work of ministry in terms of teaching you and nourishing your soul. But also, like, don't be an idiot. Like, tend to them physically. Like, have, a, have the knowledge that people are people more than just soul. They are body, mind, soul. Like, care for them. So have a philosophy of ministry that is balanced and rounded. Wasn't Jesus a great example of this? You guys remember uh, Jesus when he, when he came to the pool of Bethesda? I love that story. There's, there's all these people just struggling with d- different sicknesses. Some were paralyzed, some were blind. And they were all hanging around this pool. And they were there because this pool had an undercurrent where when it would pass by, it would cause the pool to bubble up. And superstition said it was because angels' wings were fluttering and touching in that pool. And if you were the first one to get near the bubbles, you yourself would be healed. And so a lot of, a lot of folks hung around this, this pool. One time Jesus came to the area and he looked at this guy that had been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years. Pause. What did Jesus not do? Jesus didn't go, get your act together. What did Jesus not do? I'm going somewhere else. What did Jesus do? He came right to the man who is dirty, probably smelly, probably didn't have a whole lot of friends. And he looked at him and he talked to him. Hey, do you want to get well? And the guy was like, well, yeah. I mean, everyone beats me to the bubbles. And Jesus is like, why don't you just stand up and take up your mat? And he did. It's beautiful. He like tended to the person, tended to his body, and he healed him. Oh, I love Jesus as a model. So when you read Romans 15, and it gives you a model of ministry, this is me just pastoring us and pastoring my own heart. Don't just file it away 
as some factual thing where you're like, okay, so uh, if we take a, a mission trip one day, we got to make sure to not just teach, but we also got to like paint walls in a school and an orphanage. So there we go. We're a good church then. <laughs> we took a good mission trip. I promised Newman it was balanced. We did both hard work and, and like soul work. It's like, I don't think that, would, that was Paul's intention in writing this verse. I think he would want us first to, to cherish the ministry of Jesus in our lives, right? Like, hey friends, Jesus knows your physical condition right now. Like whatever bumps, bruises, aches, pains, whatever circumstance you're going through, like Jesus is bending down and looking at you and he knows your situation. And he cares for you because he loves you. He came to the earth and purchased you by his own blood. And so you're to cherish in that. You're to remember like Psalm 139 that he is intimately acquainted with all your ways. He knows you're coming in and you're going out. When you sit, when you rise, he even knows your thoughts from afar. He's your friend. He cares. And maybe, just maybe, you woke up this morning and go, I wonder why I'm going to go to church this morning. I know I should, but Lord, why would you have me? Maybe it's just for that. And if you're comforted by that, please know that you're called to comfort others in that. It's like the mission of God in your life. So quick review. Ready? We've got this truth that ministry takes work. We saw that word initially in our passage, work. And it involves financial planning. It involves decision making. It involves friendship. It involves an attitude of cheer. And it also involves a grounded philosophy of ministry, both soul and body, right? And if we would just stop there, if Paul stopped there, this passage would be, it would just come up so short. Because we would go away from it and it would be like, well, all right, let's get our to-do lists out and let's just, let's just go for it. And we might even be tempted to be like, those are our tasks that we accomplish in and of our own strength and giftings. And Paul says, oh, don't think like that just yet. Those are all true. Those are all your calling. You got to work. But watch this massive aspect of the ministry. It's called prayer. Number two is missions prayers. It's a prayer in and of itself. It's this, it's this statement to God that says you're in control, that, that I'm surrendering to you, that I need you, that I, I'm humbling myself before you. I need you to move in this area. And it ain't happening unless you do it. And I could spend myself. I could burn both ends of the candle. I could like talk till I'm blue in the face. But it's prayer that fuels the ministry. In fact, uh, I would say a prayerless life is a very prideful life. 
So ministry really does require work. And the work is real. And the work is needed. But the work has to involve prayer. You guys remember in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, um, like they're praying. And there is some crazy stuff going on because they're praying and Michael, the the, the, the archangel, is coming down from heaven, delivering a message. And in the book of Daniel, it says that he is late, according to man's standards, by 21 days. Took him three weeks to get from heaven to earth. Why? Because he was fighting demons. I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable or not, but that's what the Bible tells us. That this good angel was fighting bad angels. And what caused this this uproar was prayer. And what caused it to come to fruition was prayer. This should scare you a little bit and encourage you to pray. So whatever is going on in your life, if you are prayerless, you're prideful. And if you are praying, pray. Like pray more. Be a man and woman of prayer for the sake of God's ministry. And we see here in this passage that Paul is going to tell us to strive with one another in prayer. Let me read it for us, okay? Here's verse 30. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, and here it comes, ready, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Why? So that I would have a nice day? Why? So that I would be healthy, happy, and whatever it is? Watch this. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. All right, so the quick question is, or that, that I could raise is this. Hey, do you strive with other people in prayer, with other people and for other people? Has that been a mark of your prayer life? Whoo! It's a tough question, isn't it? I think we would all be like, ooh, I don't think so. Yeah? But just to encourage you, there was 19 people this morning in the upper room, and they weren't praying like this. Lord, I pray that we would just have a good service. Like, we, we pray every Sunday. We prayed up here before the service started, and we fight against those cliche prayers. It, it's like we almost are tempted to be like, Lord, I pray that everything goes good, parentheses. I pray I don't look stupid up here, right? I pray that I play the right chords, that I don't blow it, and that I don't look dumb. Lord, I pray that as I'm teaching, I pray that, oh, that I won't make any funny sounds or hit the microphone. I just, just want to look like a normal, right? But this prayer and what the people prayed this morning and what the worship team was praying was that you would receive the ministry of God. That's what it means to be acceptable, right? That the people of God and the ministry would be received. 
So you have been prayed for, even this morning, that as a result of God's Word, it would go forth from this pulpit. And it would hit the pew's hearts. It would go deep down in there and it would cause internal transformation and that you would go out from here excited about whatever God told us this morning. And this morning, it's the work. That you would be excited about the work of ministry. And it, you wouldn't be like, oh, but your expectations would be shifting back. I'm going to work for Jesus this week. And man, I need to pray. And man, it's going to take some decision making. And it's going to take an attitude shift in my part. And I, I've got to just put complete over even in finances. And I want to just give it all to Jesus. I'm excited. Here we go. That's what, that's what we're praying for. For you. Not just so. And that was nice. Let's go get some lunch. Thank you for striving in prayer. To strive means to struggle with a company of people. It means to partner or to be an assistant together with. Paul doesn't consider this a secondary ministry. In some translations, it says to offer one another intense prayers. Isn't that interesting? To pray intensely. So not just like, oh, I hope, Lord, pray that Josh has a good time with the youth this evening. Pray that... Mm -mm. Like intensely praying, striving for. Look at those words and how they are praying that Paul's service to them would be acceptable. Would you pray for that this week? Your elders will be praying for that for you this week. That as you are out ministering, as you're showing your love and word and deed, we're praying that your ministry would be received. Like that people would come in contact with you and that you would have the opportunity to minister to them and that they would have a receptive heart, a soft heart. So it's praying for you, but really it's praying beyond you. Does that make sense? So that's our prayer this week for you. So listen up, all you type A folks, all you list keepers, all you folks who keep a pretty tight calendar. So far, if I could anticipate what you're feeling right now, it could be something like this. So I'm going to speak to it. Missions planning. Starting this like mountain of anxiety. Oh man, I got to look at my finances. Oh, I got to schedule some friendship time. Philosophy of ministry, oh, I've been way off. Oh man, and maybe it's a good thing, it's, you know, but I know a couple people have COVID and I'm just being honest with like thoughts. That means maybe I should bring them a meal and that means I got to go to the grocery store 
and I only have got like a few hours on like Monday night, and what about the game? And then like it just keeps building and building. And by the end of reading God's word, you become an anxious person and not one who's zealous to serve him. And you're on top of this mountain and you're like, I don't even know if I want to be here. Is that what I signed up for? You don't know the key to this passage? Very last verse. Look at it with me. Verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's the secret to this one. Peace was achieved a long time ago. God sent his son, who was peace, to achieve peace. He reconciled us to God. It happened. You, know, you feel like you're on this mountain, this building. Peace actually happened on the mountain called Calvary. At the cross, he achieved a great work. He worked. And he achieved something that you and I could never do. And he hung there. And before he breathed his last breath, he said the word, Tetelestai. It is finished. Like the work is finished. This word, it doesn't mean this, this work that had a, a historical beginning and ending and we just look back upon it with no effects. It doesn't just sit there in isolation. To tell us out, grammar geek here, but like it's the perfect tense. It means that an event that happened in the past has residual effects for the future, forever. It is finished, and it's finished, and it's finished, and it's going to continue the work of being finished in your lives until all the way to the end of the day of redemption and into the eternal state and forever and ever. That act has eternal effects on all of our lives. It is finished. So the finished work of Christ motivates us to work in missions. So when you look back at the cross, it fuels us for today. And so the passage closes with this idea of peace, and it's, and it's almost like Jesus is talking to us and saying, hey, I'm calling you to a great work for the mission of God. And if you are anxious or overwhelmed or doubtful at all that this could happen in your life and through your life, remember that this great truth is true. I am with you. It's one of the most distinct and chief characteristics of the Christian faith, that you are not alone, that the very presence of God is with you. Muslims can't say that. Buddhists can't say that. Mormons can't say that. Anyone who's not a Christian cannot say that. So please know that all your lost friends are alone and lonely because they don't have the Prince of Peace walking with them. Christian, be encouraged. If you're someone 
If someone loves the Lord, if someone is a Christian, this person will also grow to love the work of ministry. And it is the work. (laughs) This work is work. It takes planning. It takes prayer. It takes striving. But don't forget that we're also granted the presence of Jesus. And the outcome is peace. Amen? Colossians 1.20 says this, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. So I just want to connect those those realities for you today. That if you're feeling anxious, or even if you're feeling like inspired to the work, you've got to have peace. And in order to have peace, you've got to have blood. You've got to remember blood. You've got to be covered with the blood. And you've got to to cherish the one who shed his blood for you. I wish there was something tangible and cool to like remember that. Don't you guys? I wish like we could just, oh, that's right. Jesus gave us two things, two ordinances to do that. Through baptism, to remember that we were buried and that we were risen, to walk in the newness of life. And then he said, hey, I want you to remember my body and my blood. And if you take it, if you take it, examine yourself. Allow yourself to be pure and to be purified by my blood. But remember that when you take it, you're nourished to be a minister of my gospel and you're going to nourish others through my blood. And so do this in remembrance of me. So let me pray. And then this particular Sunday, um, we're just going to ask the elders uh, to come. So Paul, Peter, would would you mind standing in front of the table? And um, just as a representative, we call these under-shepherds in the church. The chief shepherd is Jesus. But under-shepherds do a great job for churches all across the world um, to represent and remind the people of God that Jesus is, is the shepherd and he's nourishing them. And so they're going to take the cup and they're going to offer the bread one at a time as you guys come forward. And they're going to say... His body broken for you and his blood shed for your salvation. They're going to give it to you. And you say, amen. And you go off and pray and be nourished by his body and blood. Let's pray together and we'll take communion together. So Lord, we love you. We love your word. We love your work. And in order to do it, we need your very presence. And so we come to you now asking with fervent hearts, would you minister to us? Would you clean us? Would you wash us whiter than snow? We thank you that that is possible through your blood. Let's take a moment. And then when you're ready, come on up.